And I want to thank you again for having me here. And I want you to turn with me, and this is amazing, as you are ready to do a study on Ezra and Haggai, because my text is Haggai chapter 2. And so I want you to turn your Bible to Haggai. And if you don't know where Haggai is, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Just go to Matthew and go back to Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai, just three books. It's a very short book, only two chapters. This is written around 530 years before Jesus is born. It's called a Pope's exilic prophetic book. And what that means is that they're now returning back after the, the, the key date is 586 B.C. And what happened 586 is when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, took all the temple um, uh, treasures, uh, including the Ark of the Covenant, into Babylon. And... Um, and so, but Jeremiah, during that time, prophesied that the Jewish people will be exiled for seven years. And what they did, they killed most of the people, but the elites, they took into exile. And some of the elites would be like Daniel. Daniel was around 15 years old. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the elite, well-educated young people, they took into captivity uh, uh, because they were smart enough to know that they could contribute to the building of Babylon. Babylon was the most powerful uh, empire at that time, more powerful than the Greek empire that would come later on with Alexander the Great, more powerful than Cyrus with the Persian empire. Only the Roman empire exceeded the wealth and the power of Babylon at that time. So Nebuchadnezzar, 586. And so after 70 years of exile, uh, Babylon was conquered by the Persians. And uh, Cyrus... Uh, became king of Persia, and we read about him in Isaiah 45 and, and also in Ezra. And Cyrus was not a believer. In fact, it says that in Isaiah 45, the Bible prophesies, even though he doesn't know me, that's what God says, but he's been chosen by me for my service. So he was anointed for God's purpose. And it's amazing how God is so powerful, so sovereign, that even if you're an unbelieving king, and Proverbs says it this way, the king's heart is like channels of waters in the hands of the Lord. He could turn it wherever he wished. And so God used Cyrus to make a decree, a king's decree, that the Jewish people can go back and build the temple. Not only build it, but out of his royal treasury, he, well, first of all, he restored everything that was stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. But then out of his royal treasury, he said, I'm going to help build the temple. And it's amazing because this is a prophetic a picture of the transfer of wealth from the unrighteous to the righteous. And throughout Scripture, it talks about in the last days, there's going to be a great transfer of wealth. Uh, for example, Isaiah 60, verse 5, they will come with the wealth of the nations. And uh, Isaiah 11, 60, verse 11 says, your gates will be open day and night as they bring the wealth of the nations. Isaiah 61 says, you will be called priests of the Lord and you will eat the wealth of the nations. In Haggai chapter 2, it talks about this wealth being transferred of what um, Cyrus began. But I want to just go to our text, and then we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. But Haggai chapter uh, 2, and just to, um, just a few verses, because we don't have time to go into the whole it's a very short letter, and I encourage you to read this, and I encourage you to go through this study of Ezra. Ezra is a chronicle. It's a historical account during this period of the building of the temple. 
Now, this was written after 18 years when the foundation of the temple had been established, had been built. But what happened was Cyrus died, a new king came into place. His name is Artaxerxes, and he receives a bad report from the Samaritans. And by the way, this is why there was so much animosity even during Jesus' time against the Samaritans. And uh, it's because uh, they were a mixed breed. These were people in the northern kingdom that intermarried with the Assyrians. Today would be modern-day Syria. And they had this eclectic religion. Uh, It was like a a cult. It would be like the Jehovah's Witness. They don't believe that Jesus is God. And so they had not only a mixed race, but they also had a false ideology. And then in their history, there was always animosity and contention, and the Samaritans gave an evil report that if this temple is built, they will rebel against Persia. So the next king, Artaxerxes, receives that report, and he stops the building of the temple. And there's a pause for 18 years. But he dies, and a new king comes into place named Darius, And he resumes the building of the temple. In fact, he read the decree of Cyrus and said, when a king makes a decree in Persia, you can't change it, including uh, the following uh, king, uh, Artaxerxes. He can't change the decree. And so they go back to the original uh, decree, and so he gives permission to build it. Now, but this time, 18 years later, they've run out of money. Uh, It's no longer the royal treasury that's financing this. So essentially... Um, Haggai is a two short chapters, is a very short letter that's a fundraiser. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not raising any funds here, okay? So this is not for the purpose, but it's a fundraiser to raise money to build the temple. They build the foundation, lay the foundation, but now they need money to finish the temple. And that's why he begins by saying, you live in panel houses in Jerusalem and Israel now. You've been now established. You've returned, but the house still remains desolate. Let's go bring down timber and let's build the house. But in Haggai 2, I believe he's prophesying to our period. It's not just the time of the post-exilic period of Israel. Because here's what it says in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and also the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of the nations and I'll fill this house with glory. So we see this transition that I'm going to shake the nation, but they're going to come with the wealth of the nations. God's going to provide for this temple. It's going to be built. And just to make sure you understand, he's talking about money. He says in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And I love the sister who prayed the prayer over the offering, and she began by saying, everything is yours. We're just stewards. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. Even we belong to God as well as our finances. The reason why I say that, because one of the lies in the church is that this is my money. This is my hard-earned money. I could do whatever I want to do with it. And if I don't want to tithe, I'm not going to tithe. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because it's God's money. We're under his lordship. And if he says, bring your tithes and offering to my house, we say, yes, Lord, we obey. And so he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. I give you the power to create wealth, Deuteronomy 8, 18. And so he's reinforcing biblical truths that was the Bible of Jesus and the early church uh, apostles. They didn't have a New Testament as 
as our brother shared, that the New Testament was forming during that period. So they used the Bible of the Old Testament as the Word of God. And so we, uh, and Jesus himself said, whoever takes and gnaws even the smallest uh, yod, which is the Hebrew, the smallest little uh, alphabet, uh, will be called least in God's kingdom. They'll still go to heaven. But I believe there is different placement and assignments in heaven. That's why we will face the judgment seat of Christ. And that's in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. In other words, that is when we receive our rewards before God and our assignment. This life is so short. Eternity is so long. I mean, you can't even fathom eternity. And what we do in this life determines our place in the life to come. This is one big test. And that's why we want to live uh, for his glory, for um, being faithful and obedient to our assignment here on earth, to fulfill our destiny. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he goes on, prophesy the glory of the latter house be greater than the glory of the former, says the Lord. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is infallible. It's inspired It is the word of God. And you're one with the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. Jesus, Yeshua, who tabernacled with us. And Father, I pray what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.17, that you will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. We want to know you. As the SP slogan is, we want to know you. We want to be like you. We want to make you known. But we want to know you, Jesus, and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being conformed to your death so that we could be transformed into your image and so we could represent you and preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom with integrity and with reality. I ask that you would change our lives And speak to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, we have been now going through a global shaking. This is not hype. It's not hyperbole. 200 nations have been impacted by COVID-19. And when this was prophesied, 500 years before Jesus was born... In 2,500 years since then, only twice have had we seen every nation shaken. I mean, nations are shaken all the time, but not all at the same time. You know, every nation goes through their challenges and trials. You have the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in Russia. You know, but it wasn't like every other nation was going through. Although World War I did impact a lot of nations, but not every nation. In church, I don't say just church history, but in history, and by the way, I'm not an expert in history, I'm not a historian, but I was a history major at the University of Maryland. That was my major. I was called into ministry. It was a secular university, and I wanted to know what I should take in order to prepare myself. And at that time, I was not thinking about seminary, but just a little bit of my background, I'm Korean. And if you know anything about Koreans, and my dad was a Korean Baptist pastor, uh, education is such a high value that my dad wanted me to go to seminary. And I was part of a network of churches where you don't need a seminary degree. I was raised up as a pastor at the age of 23. 
Uh, but my dad asked me to make a promise I'll go to seminary. And uh, just to get him off my back, I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But I didn't think he would hold me to it, but he did. (laughs) And so that's how. But I was a history major, and I thought that's all I needed to do. I minored in Greek and um, and, uh, majored in history. But in 2,500 years of history, only twice have we seen every nation shaken at the same time. And so when he was prophesying this, I'm going to shake all nations. What was he talking about, Haggai? Was he talking about, you know, he's shaking nations like the Babylonians were shaken. They were shaken by the Persian invasion and Persian takeover. Was he prophesying the Greeks would come through Alexander Great, Great or the Romans after? And, and really, it's almost like Daniel chapter 2 with the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of, you know, Babylon and then Persia and then the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire representing the Iron Lake. So that statue, you could read that in Daniel too. What's he talking about? I don't think he was talking about individual nations. I think when the Bible says, I'm going to shake all nations, I believe literally all nations. That's the way I read the Bible. You've got to take the literal meaning at face value first when you interpret Scripture. And, um, and so when did we see every nation shaken? The first was in 1939, in World War II. 1939 to 1945 was World War II. And every nation was involved. Every nation was involved in that global war. That's why it's called World War. Now you say, well, that happened in World War I. But no, there were a lot of nations that were not involved. But in World War II, every nation was involved. And even some nations who declared themselves to be neutral, they're not neutral. Like, for example, Portugal and Spain declared themselves neutral, but they were giving millions of dollars to Hitler, and they were really aligned with uh, Nazi Germany. So everyone was involved in one way or another, and that war was devastating. 80 million people died, and 80% of the 80 million were civilian, women and children, very much like what we saw on October the 7th. Hamas did not attack soldiers, didn't attack Israel uh, military. They killed women and children. It was was evil, pure evil personified. And so when we talk about World War II, the 80% of it, just civilians, including Chinese and Manchuria. And this is not casting aspersion on the Japanese, but the Japanese just slaughtered people in the Philippines and, of course, occupied Korea since the early 1900s. But um, so much atrocity was taking place, the shaking that took place. But here's the point. He says there's going to be shaking, then there's going to be a period of prosperity, and then I'm going to fill this house with glory. And it's amazing how quickly we help Germany recover and we helped Japan recover from World War II. And now Japan is one of the wealthiest nations. Same thing with Germany to this day. And, and so Haggai is prophesying, I believe he was prophesying to our period. And then he says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. In other words, revival is coming to the church. When we talk about being filled with the glory, we have to understand that word glory, the Hebrew word kavod, means the manifest presence of God. Now when Haggai was prophesying this. He was thinking, when we finish building the temple and we dedicate it, the glory is going to come inside the temple. Just like 
Solomon's temple. How many read about Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles chapter 5 when Solomon dedicated the temple? The priests could not even stand because the glory came in and they were all on their faces. By the way, 120 of them. And I don't think that number is a coincidence because there were 120 in the upper room. I think it was a foreshadow of what was to come. And so the glory was so powerful that they couldn't even perform as priests. They couldn't even worship. They were on their faces before God. And so Haggai says the glory of the latter house, in verse 9, will be greater than the glory of the former. And he's saying when we dedicate this temple, he thought that, he was, that they were going to have even greater glory. But then when you read about the dedication of the temple in Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, nothing happened. There was no glory. There was no manifestation. It was a nice ceremony. They dedicated the temple. It was finished. They had built. They were celebrating. But there was no glory. So we have to understand when it comes to prophecy and when it comes to revelation, there's three truths you need to understand. And because you're growing in the prophetic, I feel I need to share this with you because there's a difference between revelation, a prophetic word, then getting the proper interpretation, and then thoroughly the right application. All right, so I hope this is simple and clear, but think about it. You get the revelation. I'm going to fill this house with glory. But what does that mean, though? The interpretation, is it going to be this house, or was he prophesying 2,000 years, I mean 500 years later, to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? And by the way, I believe that he was prophesying to that period where the Lord came. And the glory of that house is much greater than anything that Solomon experienced. We've been in 2,000 years of visitation. And for those who don't know, we've been in 2,000 years of being in the last days. Okay? Now, we can't think in terms of uh, of chronology the way we would think in our calendar uh, and the way we think of dates and years. Because with God, one day is like 1,000 years. 1,000 years is like one day. What God is saying in the last days, this is prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh in the last days. That began in Acts chapter 2. We've been in that period for the last 2,000 years. That's why we have revival breaking out throughout church history, because he's still pouring out his spirit. And so he is prophesying that in the last days, I'm going to shake all nations and I'm going to bring revival. So what happened in 1945 after World War II is over? Well, starting in 48, we had 50 years of global revival, unprecedented global revival. And I'm talking about 1948, the revival that broke out in the Hebrides, which is a set of islands off of Scotland. I'm talking about the latter rain revival in Canada. Any Canadians here? No one? Oh, yeah, one person. Okay. Um, and so in uh, Saskatchewan, in a city, a small town north of Battiford, some Pentecostal pastors were having a spiritual retreat, and I encouraged spiritual retreats. The Holy Spirit fell, and they ended up staying there for months because of the revival, and people started to fly to north Battiford to experience this revival. Just like Azusa Street in 1906, people came in from all over the world by ship, by train. And, and so uh, that broke out in 1948. Plus, in 1948, you have what's called the Voice of Healing Revival. People that you may not know, but in, in the Pentecostal charismatic circles, they're huge names. 
Oral Roberts, Oral Roberts University was birthed by him. He began his ministry in 1948. We have one of the greatest healing evangelists named William Branham. He came into prominence through the Voice of Healing ministry. T.L. Osborne was a great evangelist that did crusades in Indonesia, around the world, in Africa. Um, he was the uh, predecessor to Reinhard Bonnke. Bonnke followed him, and T.L. Osborne was one of the greatest uh, crusader in developing nations. And let's, let's talk about the evangelical revival of Billy Graham. Billy Graham was in ministry after World War II, uh, 1945. He was preaching the gospel, uh, Youth for Christ meetings. But he began Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in 1949 and was birthed out of the crusade he did in Los Angeles to Washington Hill Street. And what was just going to be three weeks ended up being months long. It started out with a small tent, and they kept on growing the tent and had to buy a newer tent, bigger tent, and they end up at the L.A. Coliseum with 80,000 people. It catapulted him into international fame. William Randolph Hearst, who was the, at that time he had a monopoly on all the newspapers. He owned like 30 newspapers. And according to, we don't know for sure, and I don't know for sure, but according to rumors, he went to one of the meetings, and after he went to the meetings, he gave all the editors of all his newspapers, he said, Puff Graham. In other words, build him up. Let him... And all of a sudden, the next night, all the editors are there at the crusade. It was still meeting at a tent. But the next thing, the next week, he's on the front page, front cover of Time magazine, Life magazine, all the front pages. Everyone, he became a household name, and that launched him into international fame until he passed away in 2018. And so we see this incredible revival, both in the charismatic and evangelical stream, right after World War II. And now we've faced a second shaking, global shaking, in 2020 with COVID-19. Every nation, 200 nations got COVID, by the way. But it's not just the COVID. Of course, people died, not as many as those died in World War II, of course. But still... A lot of people died, but we're talking about the ramification of that, the the lockdown, for example. Just in California alone, my state, 18,000 businesses went bankrupt. In America, one out of every four restaurants went bankrupt during that year of 2020 because it was just basically small restaurants, and and if they couldn't open up, uh, they they wouldn't survive. And, And so it was just... The, the mandates, the vaccine mandates, the controversy of vaccinating three- and four-year-olds, all the shaking, economic shaking, and it polarized our nation, and it's polarized nations around the world. Should I get vaccinated, not get vaccinated? Should I wear a mask, not wear a mask? And so in the midst of this, we've had this incredible global shaking, and I want to just submit to you, even though we didn't have as many deaths, but... The suicide rate is at the highest ever in America. I don't know about Hong Kong, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's not true also around the world. Divorce rate skyrocketed. Domestic violence skyrocketed. People who are on antidepressant drugs skyrocketed. And so when we talk about some of, some of the um, suffering is even worse than just facing death. You die, that's it. But to live with depression for months now since 2020 has been insufferable. 
so the point I'm trying to make is that this shaking has been huge, and we can't minimize this. We can't just put our head in the sand like an ostrich and think that nothing happened. I can tell you without even knowing you, you've gone through three of the hardest years of your life. And God says, I'm going to shake all nations. Why? Because he's ready to fill his house with glory. He's ready to bring about, I want to submit this to you. We're on the verge of the greatest revival in the history of the church. If World War II brought about 50 years of revival, and I'm talking about not only Billy Graham, but I'm talking about the Jesus People Movement in 67. I'm talking about the charismatic renewal that hit the world. I'm talking about Toronto Blessing and the Brownsville Revival that started our church in 1994. Then what is this revival going to look like? And here's the principle, we go from glory to glory. That God's principle is that we're being changed into his image from glory to glory. It says that in 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And so as we gaze upon him, he's changing us. We don't stay the same. If you are standing still, A.W. Tozer says, if you're just standing still as a Christian, you're actually backsliding. Because God's moving forward all the time. You've got to stay up with what God's saying and what he's doing. And so if you just think, well, I'll just go to church, read my Bible, do all the things I've been doing for the last five, ten years, it may be that you actually have backslid during that period because God is asking for much more from you as his spirit of God is moving. So I believe we're on the verge of the greatest revival. So what does that revival look like? What does the historic revival look like? Because my dad was a Baptist pastor. He had, quote, revival services. What that meant is that he brought a guest speaker in from Korea that was a pastor of a big church, and they had great meetings on Friday, Saturdays, ended on Sunday morning, Sunday night. And people got saved, and he called that revival, but is that revival? No, I think those are great evangelistic services. People got saved, and we rejoice at that. We're not minimizing that. But from a historic perspective, revival, I love what my prophet friend, Lou Engel, who's been a, my prophet for like 40 years. And uh, he says, revival is God's arrival. Now, we know God's omnipresent. We know he's everywhere at, at, all at the same time. But we're talking about the manifestation of his presence. The kavod that I mentioned in the Old Testament that came into the temple at the dedication. When he comes in his glory, corporately over the people of God. Three things happen. And this is important because this is how we can gauge if we're in revival or not. If you don't see these signs, then you're not in revival. Number one, it begins with the church. It always begins with God's people returning to their first love. I mean, think about the church in Ephesus. It was the apostolic center in Paul's ministry. He plants that church in Acts 19. He spends three years there. Compared to, for example, Thessalonica, only three weeks. Corinth, a year and a half. But in Ephesus, he spends three years there because the revival was immense. All the, the cities that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia, they were all planted by the apostolic center in Ephesus. So Laodicea, Philadelphia, Smyrna, all those came into being from the three years. Because the Bible says in Acts 19, all of Asia, which is 
today modern-day Turkey heard the gospel. Amazing. And so it's the greatest. And the Bible says in Acts uh, 19, I believe is verse 6, that God did extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. That even handkerchiefs were taken from his body, and those who were sick and demonized would touch the handkerchief, they would get healed. Extraordinary. And, and to emphasize, it's like there's ordinary healings, now extraordinary healings. Ordinary miracles, extraordinary. It highlights the extraordinary. Because ordinary should be that as believers, we should lay our hands on the sick and they will recover. That's what the Bible says. Mark 16, 17, these signs follow those who believe. In my name you'll cast out demons, you shall lay your hands on the sick. It doesn't say for the healing evangelists to do this. It doesn't say apostles. It says believers. Now, how many of you are believers here? Now, if you can't raise your hand, I'm going to give an invitation at the end of the service so that you will give your heart to Jesus Christ. And don't leave here without becoming a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus. But it begins with the church. That's why it says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, not the government, if I could use the metaphor of, of my country, not the White House, not Congress, not the Senate, but if my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You say, wicked ways in the church? Yeah. We're sinners. We're sinners by the grace of God. We're singing majesty, mad letters and worship yesterday. And, you know, we're sinners, but covered by the blood of the Lamb. And what a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. But for the grace of God, we're all sinners. The Bible says there's not one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's not one person who's not broken the Ten Commandments. Everyone's broken the Ten Commandments. And Jesus even takes the Ten Commandments higher. He said, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. Well, Jesus said this. Even though it says that in the Old Testament, my, my standard is really this, and he's God. Whoever lusts after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. Whoever's looked at pornography has committed adultery in his heart. So we're all sinners. Who hasn't done that? But God, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2 verse 4, he made us alive together. By grace we have been saved through faith, not that of ourselves. It's a gift of God. The Bible says in Jeremiah 15, 5, the heart is, is desperately wicked and sick. Who can understand it? When I hear of leaders falling in an immorality or adultery, and I would think in the natural, God, I could never see that person committing that. But the truth is, but for the grace of God, there goes I. And so we need God's supernatural salvation. And the way he saves us is by giving us his spirit, but in the law in our heart and being transformed. That's what it means to be born again. If anyone being Christ, he's a new person. His old life has passed away. Behold, all things are new. In Second Chronicles 5, 17. And so we need to totally give our hearts to Jesus Christ, but it begins with the church. 
begins with you and me. We're not going to see a revival unless we repent as a church. And so what, what happened with church in Ephesus? I'm just talking about 40 years after the Apostle Paul founded that church. And by the way, guess who was the pastor of that apostolic center after Paul, when Paul was beheaded by Nero? Timothy was. So how would you like to have your founding pastor be Paul, and then his successor be Timothy? And yet, God says, I have this against you. I know your works. I know your perseverance. You work hard. It sounds like the church in Asia. You work hard. You persevere. But I have this against you. In verse 4, of Revelation 2, verse 4. You read this. You've lost your first love. You don't love me. But here's the good news. Repent. Return to the, your first love. Do the things you did at first. And he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove my presence. And I tell you, there's nothing worse than not having his manifest presence. That's why Moses said in Exodus 33, unless your presence goes with us, we're not going any further. And so it's so important for us to realize that we have this salvation that we have to steward. And I'm going to go into touching on people's toes here. Just because you got saved doesn't mean that you will remain saved. I don't believe in the doctrine, once saved, always saved. You read about it in Hebrews chapter 6. I could go through a number of passages in Hebrews and other passages. You still have the freedom to choose to walk away from God. And just because you go to church services doesn't mean that you're saved. He said, bring forth fruit of your salvation. If you're still living in immorality and you're saying, I follow Jesus, that's, that's a joke. If you're sleeping around and saying, I love Jesus, it, it's, it's, you're talking about hypocrisy at the highest level. And there's so many Christians who claim to be Christians, and the problem with the church in America and the Western world is that because we prayed a little prayer, accepted Jesus as our Savior, we think we're saved but we continue to live in sin. By the way, that phrase is not even in the Bible, accept him as your savior. No, it says when you make Jesus Lord of your life. You know the word savior only appears 37 times in the Bible. The word Lord, 7,700 times. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we were singing the Christmas hymn, that Christ is Lord. What does Lord mean? Why did God have that title 7,700 times? It means that he's number one in your life. He's the owner of everything. He's your leader. He's your boss, if you will. Everything belongs to him. And if you walk in the reverence of God, the fear of the Lord, you will obey whatever he asks you to do, beginning with obeying his word. And I could tell you, as a pastor for 45 years, I've been a pastor for 45 years, a believer for 50 years, so many Christians are not obeying the Word of God. They're just playing church. He never came to just play church. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. I want 100% of your life. This is an upside-down kingdom. If you want life, you've got to lose your life. I want all of it. You've got to give me your life. I want an exchange. 
And what does that encompass? It doesn't just mean that, okay, I'll give you my heart. It means giving him everything, your future, your relationships, your talents, your finances, all that you are, all that you have, you're saying it's under your loving lordship. You're my Lord. You're my boss. You're a God in my life, and there are no others. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up the cross daily. What does that mean? Well, anyone who took up a cross during the time of Christ was, because under the Roman rule, was going to be crucified. It was going to be executed, but it was going to be executed with humility. When Jesus was crucified, they stripped him. He was stark naked. It's the most humbling death you could go through, but God in his sovereignty came at the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4, Jesus in the fullness of time came during the Roman occupation, and he prophesied he was going to die over and over again. He was going to be crucified. And so the main problem for us is, is our pride. We don't want to give him that kind of lordship. It's the same pride that Lucifer had that caused him to be cast out of heaven with one-third of the angels. It's the same pride that Adam and Eve had because they want to be like God. They want to be in control and not allow God to be in control and cause death to enter in, and we've been dying ever since, spiritually but also physically. And so when I gave my life to Jesus Christ at the age of 17, I came out of drug culture, drug addiction, even though I grew up in the church, this is, this is the hypocrisy of the church. This is that I was a pastor's kid, and here I'm doing drugs. It may not be that over, but you know what? I, I have to be honest with you. One of our leaders in our church, he became a leader, but let me tell you his story. His name is Ray Sykes. And he came forward at a meeting uh, when we gave the invitation for those who would like to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. So he came forward. And of course, it was an invitation to believers who wanted more of the Holy Spirit. So he came forward and he said, I've never spoken in tongues. I wanted to receive it. I said, great. I shared some scriptures with him and I laid hands on him, prayed for him. Nothing happened. And I said, well, let's just persevere. Let's pray again. I prayed for him the second time. Nothing happened. I said, Ray, let's just back up a little bit. Just tell me your testament. How did you give your life to Jesus Christ? Because that was the first time I met him. I didn't know anything about his background. And he said, well, I was in a rock band, and then I went to a Baptist church, and I'm not casting spiritual on Baptists because I'm a Baptist background, but this is just telling you what he told me. And the pastor said, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, raise your hand, and then invite those who raised their hand to come forward. And I'm saying, this sounds really good. It sounds like, you know, he really got saved. And so I prayed the prayer. And I said, so what was your life like beforehand? Did you, were you like me? Were you on drugs? He said, yes, I was on drugs. But not only drugs. I, I, you know, I, I got drunk every day. Every day. If I didn't have drugs, I got drunk every day. And then I said, what about your sexual life? Were you walking... Uh, and immorality, and he said, yes, I was bisexual, homosexual, and heterosexual. I said, but when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you gave up the drugs, and you gave up the sex, and now you're living for the Lord, aren't you? He looked down at me, and he said, no, I'm still struggling with homosexuality, and I'm still getting drunk every day. I said, what does that look like? 
He said, well, I buy a case of beer and I drink myself to sleep every day. A case of beer. And I was thinking to myself, he must have an amazing bladder because I don't know what you do with all that beer in your system, you know. But this is what he told me. And I said to Ray, I said, Ray, I have good news and bad news. Let me tell you the bad news. You're not saved. You never got saved. Because if you were saved, you would change. You would repent. And you haven't repented. But let me tell you the good news. You can be. And all of a sudden, he was sober. He was shocked. He said, you mean all this time, for the last year, I've, I've not been a Christian? No. Just because you, you call yourself a Christian, but you're living in sin, sexual immorality, and alcoholism, and drug abuse, you're not a Christian. But you can be. And he said, what do I have to do? And I told him, you have to repent, and you have to give 100% of your life to Jesus Christ. Now, I've been married... For over 44 years, almost 45 years. What if I, on my wedding day, Sue and I are in front of all these witnesses. And by the way, that's why Jesus calls people out publicly. Because he wants others to witness. And that's why you have a wedding that's public, not a private wedding. Although some people have it private. What if I said to my wife, on her wedding day, and I said, you know what? I, you know... You know my background, honey. You know that I slept around before I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And so when we get married, I, I want to just say I'm yours 98% of my time. But that 2%, I want to have the freedom to sleep around with the person I want to sleep with. What do you think would have happened on that day at the altar? Well, first of all, she would have given me the right hand of fellowship. She would slap me across the face. And she would say, forget you. I'm out of here. I'm not going to be married to someone who's just giving me 98%. But we do that with Jesus Christ. I'll give my heart to you, but let me just keep this sin in my life. Let me just look at pornography. Let me, let me do marijuana. It's legal in California. So you'd be amazed how many Christians are getting high in California. And so Jesus said, I want you to take up the cross. I want you to die to what you want, what you think, what you feel. And I want 100% of your life. That's where revival begins. Revival begins with the church. That's why he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Begins with you and me. And the second characteristic is that the harvest comes in because you're on fire for Jesus Christ. When you are on fire for the Lord, you start sharing the gospel. During the Jesus people, when I got saved, I just would pick up hitchhikers. Once they were trapped in my car, I would lead them to Jesus Christ. It was so easy to lead people to the Lord because God was shaking things back in the 60s and 70s as well. God's shaking things because why? Because C.S. Lewis said in the problem of pain, God shouts to us in our pain, in our suffering. What does that mean? When things are going well, who needs God? But when you get hit with COVID and then all of a sudden your parents die or your wife is pregnant and you can't visit her in the maternity ward because they've just completely isolated her because of COVID, you start suffering and you begin to wonder what in the heck's going on? And you may be saying, God, I don't even know if you exist, but if you're there, just reveal yourself to me because you're now looking and searching. See, I believe that God allows all these shaking. I don't think he's the author of World War II. I believe this, 
devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He came to give us peace, inner peace, but ultimately even physical peace. But the devil knows his time is short and he's gone. But here's what the Bible says. What the enemy has meant for evil, he turns around and uses it for the good. And Romans 8, 28 is that God causes all things to work together for good. And so here's the point I'm trying to say is that there's a shaking going on. But unless you share with these people about the good news of Jesus Christ, I feel that mask is like a metaphor of the silencing of the church. I'm not against masks per se, you know, for protection and all that. But I'm just saying the metaphor of just being quiet. Because you may not wear a mask, but you haven't shared the gospel since you've been in early days of walking with Jesus Christ. Are you hearing what I'm saying? How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without someone who presents the good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? He's talking about us. God has taken and chosen the foolish thing of preaching to win people to Christ. I was just uh, with an unbeliever yesterday who took me from the hike because uh, I had to get back to the meeting that we had here at SP at at 3 o'clock. And uh, I'm sitting up front with a driver who's taking me back to the hotel. And as I'm just striking up a conversation, I don't know him. He's just been designated to drive. I just met him th- that day. As he's driving me back, I started to talk with him. And as I began to talk with him, I realized he's not a Christian. He's just a Buddhist background. He's been to church before. He didn't get much out of church. Someone invited him to church, and he went. And I, I began to share the gospel with him. I said, uh, you know, that Jesus died for your sins. He said, I've heard this. And, but he was basically saying, so what do I do with this? Well, you have to do three things. Number one, you've got to repent of your sins. Number two, you have to believe that Jesus died for you and he rose again. This is not just a myth. As Paul said, if, uh, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then... We're, we're all deceived. We might as well go out and party, eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we die. If this is not true, then, and then all of a sudden you have to realize that all these people died because they saw the resurrected Jesus. You wouldn't die for a lie. You wouldn't die for fake news. It's the truth. And so I said, you have to make a decision. And he said, well, I think I believe that Jesus did die for my sins and rose again. And then thirdly, I said, you have to commit your life to Jesus 100%. He said, well, I've never done that. I said, that's right. That's why you're not a Christian. But you can. And at that point, he was driving up to the hotel, and I said, would you like to do that? He said, yes. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ because it was just a simple, clear message of repent, believe on the Lord Jesus, and commit your life to him. Because true faith is action. It's not just intellectual. It's not mental assent. It is being obedient by giving your life to Jesus Christ. But what if I never talked to him? This was just yesterday afternoon. He would still be in lost in darkness. God gets the glory. I'm not saying this. I'm trying to inspire you that the way the harvest is going to come is not through marketing. It's not good programs, although I'm all for that. And I'm all for marketing as well, whatever it takes. But the truth is, throughout church history, through 2,000 years, it's been people like you opening your mouth and sharing your faith. So you say, well, I'm kind of shy. It's not, it doesn't matter what your personality is. And here's what God promises. I will give you power 
so you could be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's not by might, it's not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6, he'll give you the Holy Spirit. But he gives it to those who are revived or totally committed to the Lord. Totally committed. The way I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't even know. I was not exposed to the charismatic movement. I was a Baptist. Back in 1974, we, our worship songs were songs like Day by Day. I know it doesn't make sense. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it dates me. We're talking about 50 years ago. But the words were powerful to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly day by day. And at the church service, this was our worship song, and I'm singing the song, but I said, wow, you know, it hit me. The words are really, really clear. I said, I want to see you more clearly. I want to love you more dearly. I made this my prayer, and I was worshiping the Lord. I said, God, I want to follow you more nearly. And the moment I prayed that, all of a sudden, the power of God hit me. It began in my feet. My legs got numbed, and my feet were tingling like I had fallen asleep. So I thought I had fallen asleep while I was standing and worshiping. So I started to shake it off, but it grew more intense. It shot up my body, up to my head, down to my hands. I could not even close my hand to make a fist. And that's how intense the tingling sensation was. At the same time, I'm experiencing this liquid love coming over me, and I'm weeping, wailing. In fact, I made it such a scene. My youth pastor came up to me and said, whatever's happened to you, take it to the men's room because you're causing a distraction. That's how much I was weeping. I was totally caught up with God. But I received the power of the Holy Spirit. And after that, God started to use me as an evangelist, and all these people were getting saved. We need power, but he gives power to those who are consecrated. And that's what I want to do in a moment is give you an invitation to consecrate yourself. It's the Joshua 3-5 moment. What did God say to Joshua? I'll consecrate yourself today. Tomorrow, I'm going to show you amazing things. I'm going to do amazing things in your life, but I need a consecrated heart. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord look throughout the whole earth, that he may show himself strong on behalf of those hearts are completely his. Is your heart completely his? Is it 100% his? Not 98%, not 95%, not 50%. He wants 100%. And the third characteristic of this historic revival leads to social transformation. Every revival leads to change in society. So as a harvest comes in, people are saved. They're changed because if anyone being in Christ is a new person. Personal transformation leads to society being transformed. And that's the mandate that God's given to us. He said, I want you to disciple nations in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You notice that word, make disciples of nations, and didn't say win souls and disciple them. Although it implies that. But he says, I want to transform nations. I want you to say injustices like human trafficking that you're doing end in Hong Kong. I want to see abortion end. That, to me, is the number one injustice. Why? Because the Bible says in Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven, which is an abomination, and one of them up there at the top is hands that shed innocent blood. It's an abomination to God. Innocent lives made in the image and likeness of God. And I'm not here to condemn you if you've had an abortion. But I'm trying to say to us as Christians, you have to have a biblical value. You have to be pro-life. And in our nation, it's really uh, amazing because I, I, people criticize me for being political. I, I am not political. I just am a person that wants to see righteousness and justice on earth. 
And to me, the number one injustice, I mean, if that was the case, then I would have been silent during the slave days. That was the number one injustice. How could you not speak out? Bonhoeffer said, to be silent in the face of evil is in itself evil. To not to act is to act. To not to speak is to speak. Your, your silence is deafening. It's shouting to people that you consent to the immorality, the abortion, the transgenderism, same-sex marriage. You go down the list of any. Because what I do do is I preach the Bible. And when I preach the Bible, people say you're being political because it's touching on areas in society that's mainstream. I mean, California, I'm from L.A., is the most... Woke, we have declared ourselves an abortion sanctuary state. In other words, if you want to have an abortion from any state in America, like Texas, which is illegal, you could have an abortion in California at our tax dollars. We're a transgender sanctuary state. This became law in 2023 in California. In other words, if you're 17 and under, you don't qualify if you're 18 and over, but it's 17 and under, a minor, we're talking about going after children, and you want to have a sex change, we will pay for that at our tax dollars, give you, and to be honest with you, they call it transitioning, it calls uh, an operation, but to me it's mutilation. We'll cut off your genitals, we'll cut off your breasts, give you hormonal blockers, give you testosterone, if you feel that you're a boy and you're actually in a girl's body, we'll give you estrogen if you are a man that you think you're a girl. It's evil. For us to not speak out, we are just being biblical when we say God created them male and female. He created them. Can I hear an amen? Am I speaking to the right group here? But people say, the moment you touch on that thing, you're being political. And I say, I'm not. I'm just being biblical. But it begins with us. The reason why we're so woke as church, because there's so much lukewarmness. We are like the church in Sardis. We think we're alive, but we're actually spiritually dead. We're asleep. And he says, wake up in Revelation 3.1. And we've lost our first love. How many of you want revival in Hong Kong and in the world? Well, it begins with you. Let's stand up. We don't point the finger at anyone else. You said, bring revival to me, Lord. And how does that happen when you repent Three things. Repent. Believe in the good news that Jesus died for his sins. He took your place. He went to hell for us. He faced judgment. He rose again the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he says, I'll give you that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. I'll give to you. But you have to be a vessel that's consecrated to him. Look. If I had a glass here and it was dirty and I had a glass that was clean, which glass would I use to fill with water? It's just common sense. That's why the Bible says, repent, be baptized in water, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, verse 42. It's really simple. Is that I'm looking for clean vessels. I'm not talking about perfection. No one's perfect. But it's a heart that is bent towards God and say, God, I'm yours. No compromise. You're number one in my life. It's all or nothing. That's what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. This is nothing new. This is basic Christianity 101. But blessed are you if you do it. I want to pray for you. I want the Holy Spirit to convict you. And I'm going to ask you, if you are here and you say, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life, and some of you are... Uh, uh, most of you are believers and it's a prayer of consecration 
But I also know in a size like this, there are some who think they're a Christian, but they've not been really truly born again. And that's why you've been struggling in your walk with the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to make this prayer really for the first time in your life. It'll be very simple. It'll be something like, God, forgive me for my sins. I repent. Jesus, I give you my whole life, 100%. And by your grace, I will love you and follow you all the days of my life. If that is you, but I want everyone to pray this. For believers, is consecration. For unbelievers or those who are deceived, thinking they are, I call them counterfeit converts. I may, that may offend you, but I'm speaking the truth and love to you because I want to help you to walk with the Lord the way he wants you to walk. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Let's all say this out loud because there's something powerful. The Bible says, if you believe in the heart, God raised from the dead, but with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. When you make him Lord, he becomes your savior. Okay, so pray this prayer with me. Just say, Heavenly Father, let me hear you. Heavenly Father, I repent of my sins. Forgive me for all my selfishness. Jesus, I give you my whole life. I surrender all, all that I am and all that I have. And by your grace, I will love you with all my heart. By your grace, I will radically obey you. By your grace, I will follow you all the days of my life. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name. Now I'm going to ask you to look with every eye open, everyone looking around. Jesus always called people out publicly because he said, if you don't accept me before men, I'm not going to accept you before my father because it's not real. But if you really accepted me, then you're going to proclaim it. And if you can't do it in a house of worship like this place, then you're not going to do it out in the street. But if you pray that prayer and you meant that with all your heart, whether it's rededication consecration or first time, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and wave at me everywhere throughout this all the time. Just wave that and say, I really meant that prayer. If you really meant it. Now I'm going to ask you, if you meant it and you did it for the really first time, you weren't sure, but you made sure, would you raise your hand and let me see who you are. Just say, I prayed that for the very first time I feel in my life. Just raise your hand. Let me see who you are. All right, let me close. Father, I pray that you seal this commitment. It doesn't take many. You just said 120 in the upper room. And you changed the world. That's why John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist denomination, you give me 100 men, but let me also add women who love God and hate sin, usher in the kingdom in one generation. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance. May he be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance, give you the shalom of Jesus. What is shalom? It's the absence of evil and the presence of everything good from a loving Heavenly Father. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen.